Thank you for listening to the Soul City Church podcast. Be sure to follow us on our Facebook and Instagram at Soul City Church. For more information, visit us on our website, soulcitychurch.com. Well, here in this room, I'm still feeling the moment of that song. You know, I've loved the song, Give Me Jesus, for years, but being reminded by Alexandria where it was birthed, where it came from. I'm just deeply grateful to have experienced that together today. Well, my name is Nancy, and it has been a very long time since I've gathered in this room. And I want to welcome all of you who are here today. We're socially distanced, but even just seeing half your faces uh, with your masks, it's, it's really a beautiful thing. I also want to welcome anybody who's uh, joining us online. Please let us know where you're joining from. We'd love to hear that. And if you're listening to this podcast later, I'm just so glad you're part of this experience as well. So I have a question for all of us as we begin. I want you to think back to when you were really little. When you were little, when you were young, did you tend to be more of a rule keeper or a rule breaker? I'm curious, do we have any rule breakers in the house, people who lean that way? Yeah. I mean, we're all capable of both, of course, but I think we lean more in one direction or the other. I was definitely in the category of the rule keeper. I have two sisters and a brother, but the most striking contrast is between me and my younger sister, April. She was only 13 months behind me, and while I played the role of the good girl, she who rarely got in any trouble. April pushed the limits. She had a lot more spunk and a whole lot more fun. I vividly remember a summer day, though, when we both broke the rules. We lived on a suburban street with very little traffic, but when we were young, my parents made it very clear we weren't allowed to cross the street unless one of our parents was with us. So one day, when we were getting really bored with whatever we were playing, One of us, I don't remember which one, but I'm going to go with April here. I think it was her, suggested we go ahead and run across the street and run back. This made me very, very nervous. But I decided to join in with the group and go for it. So we ran across and right back. And it was so much fun. And there were no cars. And so we did it again and again. Not being the smartest kids on the block, we never thought for a moment that our mom might look out the window and see what we were doing. But of course, she did see. And when we came inside, we heard those six words no child ever wants to hear, wait until your father gets home. Now, that scared us because back then, parents would spank their children. And my dad was really a gentle giant, but we were nervous for him to come home and get our spanking. The anticipation of it was worse than anything. He never swatted us too hard, and my sister April would tuck little children's books in her pants so that didn't hurt so bad. I don't know how my dad never figured that out. But that experience propelled me into becoming an even more diligent rule keeper. Now last week, Jarrett taught us from Mark chapter 2 about the new thing, the really new thing that Jesus wants to do in you and I. If, if you didn't hear it, I encourage you to listen to that excellent message because we're going to build on it today. In fact, it's going to 
shock you, as it did me, how much Jesus had to say the same things over and over again for people back then and, honestly, for us, because we just don't get it, right? So today's message is going to feel a little bit like Groundhog Day to some of you with a similar theme from last week, but we all need to fully embrace and understand these truths. The story we're going to read is found in Mark chapter 3. I want to encourage you to grab your Bible at home um, or your screen, however you want to read along. And uh, we're going to start with verse 1 in chapter 3. This story um, basically comes not long after the experience of Jesus talking about fasting, remember, and the Sabbath and wineskins. Okay, this is very close to those experiences. And once again, Jesus has a lot to say about rule keepers and religion, and some very bad news, actually, for rule keepers. Then there's going to be some good news, I promise, for others. So let's read this together. Another time, he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now, none of the characters in this story were there by coincidence. The church leaders called the Pharisees knew that Jesus had a practice of gathering in the synagogue on the Sabbath. So the entire scene is actually a setup orchestrated to trap Jesus into breaking the Sabbath rules again. Now, we do not know for certain, but the text suggests to us that the man with the shriveled hand was recruited recruited by the Pharisees as bait. You see, their law forbade any intervention or healing on the Sabbath unless a person's life was threatened. So obviously, Jesus could have waited until the next day to heal a person's hand. The Pharisees, by this point, had seen Jesus perform other miracles. And here's, this is important. Their question was not, could he heal the man, but would he? Would he do it on the Sabbath? So Jesus calls the man to stand up in front of everyone, and then he poses one of his remarkably wise questions that cut to the heart of the matter. He asks, is it better to do good or evil on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? In Matthew's account of this story, there's a little bonus section where Jesus gives an example from everyday life. This is from the message version. Jesus said, is there a person here who finding one of your lambs falling into a ravine wouldn't, even though it was the Sabbath, pull it out? Surely, Jesus said, kindness to people is as legal as kindness to animals. Now, the ordinary everyday farmers who were gathered in the synagogue that day likely got a really good laugh at that story. They didn't think the big city rabbis would understand anything about real-life farming. You could never leave a horse or a lamb or a mule without food and water on the Sabbath or keep the beast stuck in a ditch just because you were forbidden to work. The choice to save the life of your animal was unquestionably the good and right choice. So Jesus was saying that humans, right, are far more valuable than animals. 
Now, whenever we read a story in the Gospels, a tremendous exercise is to put ourselves inside the story, seeking to understand the perspective of the key characters. So first, the man with the shriveled hand is the victim in this story. Oral tradition suggests that this man was a plasterer, a craftsman, who needed both hands to do his job. That may or may not be true, but let's imagine him brought into the synagogue that morning by religious leaders who likely don't even know his name, but who saw him as the perfect bait for Jesus, with a disability, but not on the brink of death. So Jesus asked the man to stand in front of everyone, which may have been humiliating, but Jesus wanted to be sure to hide the mir- not to hide the miracle that was about to happen. He wanted everyone to see it. Now, Jesus is clearly the hero in the story, and his words and actions leave the Pharisees speechless, once again, more committed than ever to ruin Jesus. This was not the first or the last time the religious leaders tried to trap Jesus. In fact, I'm reminded of the time, remember when they dragged a woman who was caught in adultery, and they shamed her, and they demanded that she be stoned. The man, by the way, involved in that sin was nowhere to be found. He was not accused. But in that situation, Jesus also responded with divine wisdom and grace, and he left the people speechless and just walking away. So let's talk about these Pharisees. I think they're the villains in our story. When we read the accounts in the Gospels, it's very easy to rise up with judgment and condemnation and even hatred for these leaders. In fact, I find myself even saying the word with disdain, Pharisees. I'd like to try that in the room. I'm going to count to three, and I want you to say it with as much disdain as you can, okay? One, two, three. Pharisees. Oh, that wasn't very good. Let's do that again. One, two, three. Pharisees. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what do we know about these people? The word Pharisee means one who is separated, and it refers to their separation from non-Jewish people, known then as Gentiles, but also separation from the more casual not-so-religious Jews, and separation from any source of impurity. Essentially, they separated themselves from anyone except their little group. The Pharisees numbered only about 6,000 people back then, held to a meticulous adherence to the minutiae of the law, in particular the book known as the Torah. These men, and they were all men, were obsessed with following both the written laws and the oral tradition designed to add to and further explain the laws that we find in our Old Testament. So from a very young age, a little boy raised to be a Pharisee would be expected to completely memorize and live out the 613 laws in the Torah. Many of these laws centered on purity. The Pharisees were precursors to hand sanitizer. They would have fit right in these days with their obsessive washing of cups and bowls and hands. Now, in fact, I saw a modern-day little Pharisee on the news last week. Maybe you saw this. Take a look at this little girl who we're going to call a little Pharisee. Everything she sees is hand sanitizer. This is how we're raising our children in COVID. (laughs) She has got it down. One more, the real thing, and she can't even reach it. Oh. (laughs) Now it's probably mean to call a little girl a Pharisee. 
But you know, back then, when a young man was ready to become an official Pharisee, there was a ritual involved, not unlike joining a fraternity today. And it required a formal commitment. The prospective Pharisee would recite a pledge in front of three witnesses, promising to spend his life observing every single detail of the scribal law. I don't know if there was hazy involved. They don't really seem like a fun bunch, so I kind of doubt it. But the Pharisees also had a huge focus on the Sabbath. Now remember, God had given in the Ten Commandments the law that we should carve out one day a week for rest and celebration, a day when we do not work. But the Pharisees decided that not working needed way more definition so that no one could ever be confused. So they added 39 categories of activities to be avoided on the Sabbath. For example, you could only swallow enough milk for one, or carry enough milk for one swallow. You could carry a spoon, but it could only weigh no more than one fig. They answered questions in their rule book concerning whether a woman could wear a brooch on the Sabbath, whether a mother could be allowed to pick up her child, and whether a man could wear his wooden leg. And in almost every case, the answer was a resounding no. The Pharisees rarely said yes to anything. I'm reminded of some great parenting advice that my husband and I received from a friend when our girls were little. She told me to say yes whenever possible, to not say no unless it was essential. This way, no would mean something, and I would not immediately squish all the desires of my children. The Pharisees would disagree. Their mantra would be, when you don't know, the answer is no. <laughs> there is no group of people who enrage Jesus more than the Pharisees. This story is just one example. We're told by Mark that Jesus looked around at them in anger and was deeply distressed. He knew that the Pharisees carried no love or concern or even mercy for the man with the shriveled hand. That man was not an individual to the Pharisees. He was simply an issue, a prop, a tool. And when Jesus saw hardness of heart, it angered him more than anything else. He called out the pride and the stubbornness in the Pharisees. And he said that they were blind to their sin. The most enraged declarations of Jesus against the religious leaders can be found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23. It's called the woes chapter because Jesus gets on a roll with seven woes listed, each starting Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you blind guides. He called them out for arrogantly taking the place of honor at banquets, for wearing ostentatious clothing to call attention to themselves, for praying long, complicated prayers just to get approval and attention. And towards the end of his rant, Jesus actually calls them snakes, a brood of vipers who would be condemned to hell. As I read this story in Mark over and over the past couple of weeks, I decided to put myself in the shoes of the Pharisees back then. This was an effort to be empathetic. And so I imagined a man who had devoted his entire life, all the way back to childhood, to memorizing the minutiae of the Torah, pages and pages and pages. And I imagine that man keeping every one of those rules to perfection with all the cleansing rituals, avoiding anything even close to work on the Sabbath. I imagined devoting my entire life to knowledge and purity and then looking around 
and seeing people who did not come close to my standards in terms of their daily lives, and yes, to being filled with judgment against them, those unclean people. It's like today when you see someone not wearing a mask. But let's take it a step further. The Pharisees were searching and looking for the Messiah. Someone predicted to come and usher in the kingdom of God, and they had a long list of requirements and expectations for who that person would be. And along comes Jesus of Nazareth. Nothing like king. Yes, he seemed to be doing some miracles, but surely this was not the Messiah. After all, he broke Sabbath rules and all other kinds of rules, and he hung out with people on the margin, prostitutes and lowly fishermen and tax collectors, the uneducated, the most sinful of people. And on top of all that, this Jesus had the audacity to criticize us, the religious leaders. As I imagined this Pharisee, I could begin to understand the deep resentment and anger posed by the threat of Jesus. The people were thronging to him, and they seemed to adore him, and they aren't listening to me anymore. Jesus is promising them freedom, and I have no idea what that means, but it can't be good. So that was the first stage of my reflections. And then came a more surprising series of thoughts. I realized how much like a Pharisee I can be. Ouch. As a rule keeper, I must admit moments throughout my life when I am a Pharisee, and I want to show you just a few examples. Maybe you can relate to some of these. I am a Pharisee whenever I hold more tightly to rules than seeing a person's actual need. Whenever I make a snap judgment on someone based on external factors, like how the person is dressed, their age, their gender, their skin color, or their weight. Whenever I prioritize knowledge over love, then I'm a Pharisee. When I use a person or a people group to make a point instead of truly seeing the person. When I think my own agenda is far more important than taking a moment to really look into a person's eyes and have a human connection with someone at the grocery store, at the gym, or a waitress. Whenever I inwardly see myself as better or smarter than someone else. Whenever I totally miss the point valuing knowledge and rule-keeping over love and freedom. Whenever I pridefully hold on to my need to be right and get defensive. Whenever I focus more on my exterior image than on my interior soul. And whenever I reveal a sense of entitlement instead of recognizing my unearned privilege based on my race and heritage. Yes, I can totally be a Pharisee. And I wonder today if any of you can identify the posture of a Pharisee in your own heart. You know, the thing about rule keepers and people all caught up in religion is that we can be so totally blind to our own sin. That's what Jesus kept calling out. Our sins are more secret, aren't they, than the blatant sins of rule breakers. But Jesus consistently was much more harsh toward the pride of rule keeping religious types. In his classic book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, Father Henry Nouwen contrasted the character of the elder brother and the younger brother in the story that Jesus told. Here's an image of the painting by Rembrandt that provided the reflections in Nouwen's book. 
You likely know the story of the younger brother. He left the comfort of home and a stake in his father's business to pursue a life of excessive pleasure. And eventually, he comes to his senses, having lost everything, and he's at the end of himself. And he decides to go home, not at all sure how his father will respond, but desperate and broken. And when he was a long way off in the distance, his father spots him. And he runs to him with open arms, welcoming the younger son home, even before he could say anything. He just welcomed him home. But it's the response of the older brother that I find deeply compelling. He represents the rule-keeping good son who did everything that was expected. And this older brother resents the huge celebration thrown for his wayward sibling. He thought, I never left. I did everything right, and my naughty brother gets a party? What the heck? Filled with envy and a strong sense of entitlement, the older brother is actually just as lost, though now one says his lostness is much harder to identify. On the outside, the elder brother is seen as obedient and hardworking. People respect and admire him. But on the inside, he was filled with judgment and prejudice and a fierce need to be right. Now one tells us that there is so much frozen anger among the people who are so concerned about avoiding sin. Frozen anger. What Jesus called out in the Pharisees, my friends, most of all, was their hardness of heart. God is in the business of renovating hearts. You know, we all love a good makeover story, don't we? When someone gets a brand new wardrobe or a haircut, or how about fantastic fixer-upper shows on HGTV? It's so addictive. The before and after contrasts are compelling. Well, our God is in the renovation business. It's what he does. He's not in the religious rule-keeping business, but the renovation of our hearts. Dallas Willard wrote that the greatest need you and I have, the greatest need of collective humanity, is renovation of our hearts. And of course, that's what Soul City is all about. You know, when my mother passed away a few years ago, I decided to ask for her teacup collection. She had several teacups lined up, perched uh, on her windowsill, and I now have about six of them on the ledge above my kitchen sink. The outside of this cup and this dish can be really clean. But recently, I decided to kind of look inside, and I was shocked to discover a dead stink bug. Do you know what those are? <laughs> and some dust, and, and it was just nasty inside. Jesus told the Pharisees that they were hypocrites for cleaning the outside of the cup and the dish when inside they were filled with greed and self-indulgence. And he called out their blindness and he instructed them to start with cleaning the inside and then the outside would also be clean. This is our challenge, to focus our eyes and our energy on the inside of our hearts and then whatever's on the outside will be a reflection of that. To bring this home and summarize, I want to look at two distinct paths today. One is bad news and one is good news. The path of religion or the path of renovation. So let's contrast these together. Religion is hard-hearted. Renovation is a soft, teachable heart. Religion is rooted in knowledge. Renovation is in love. 
Religion's about exterior focus, renovation, inner focus. Religion seeks human approval. I don't care what other people think, instead of seeking God's approval. Religion is filled with resentment, right? And renovation is filled with joy. And those two things cannot coexist, by the way. Religion has a sense of entitlement. Renovation has a sense of gratitude. Religion's all about judging and comparing to other people, whereas renovation accepts others and it's empathetic. Religion has a strong need to be right, and renovation says, you know what? I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Religion leads to death. Renovation leads to life. Religion is really bad news, and renovation is the very best of good news. Choosing the path of religion always seems like the easier path. I can check things off a list. I can focus on my exterior behavior. That comes much easier to me. Yet I see that resentment and pride and criticism and complaint are much harder to see and much harder to root out of my heart. I identify with the plight of Father Nowen, who contrasted his own rule-keeping with the sin of the younger brother. He said, returning home from a lustful escapade seems so much easier than returning home from a cold anger that has rooted itself in the deepest corners of my being. My resentment is not something that can be easily distinguished and dealt with rationally. So I ask you today, is there any hope for rule keepers? Clearly God shows grace to the younger brother when he repents of his blatant sins, but what about us older brothers who are standing there with our arms crossed over our hard hearts? What I love in the prodigal story is the father reminding his older son, get this, he says, you are always with me. I still love you. All I have is yours. You are always with me. There is grace for you too. There is good news for us rule-keeping religious types if only we choose to cooperate with the renovation. One tremendous example is the Apostle Paul. This gives me so much hope. He was once the most prideful and angry of Pharisees, and yet he was captivated by grace and the freedom he found in Jesus Christ. And Paul was later able to write that the greatest of all virtues is love far surpassing knowledge that puffs us up. There's good news today for all of us, my friends. We can know this Jesus who saw right into the hearts of everyone in the synagogue that morning, from the man with the shriveled hand to the Pharisees with the shriveled hearts. To all of us, Jesus asked, will you recognize your sins, even the most hidden ones of pride and resentment and entitlement? Will you bring them out into the light and cooperate with the work I long to do in you. Because our God is in the business of renovation and he can take the hardest of hearts and utterly transform them to be soft with love and joy and gratitude and freedom. Now we must admit this renovation business doesn't happen overnight. I know for me it's been a lifelong process of first becoming aware of my blindness, naming it and confessing it. For the past seven months or so, I've been taking a deeper look at my own capacity for entitlement and really seeking to understand the white privilege that is a huge part of my story. 
and my quest to understand has led me to some deep reading and to conversations about racism and white fragility and what it might look like to really truly be an anti-racist. And I've had to admit that the inside of my cup needs the cleansing work of Christ. Our homework this week involves paying attention to moments when we're tempted to just look good on the outside and keep the rules and missing the point of what is happening in our heart. And I want to invite you to a spiritual practice that is so significant. It's the practice of confession. This is when we ask God to show us where we're off, where our heart needs work, and admit our blindness. So throughout the week, when you sense anger or self-righteousness or defensiveness or entitlement rising up in you, pay attention. Be curious and ask yourself, now what was that about? And confess it to your Heavenly Father who knows all about our hearts and wants to usher in forgiveness and transformation. Let's cooperate with the renovation He longs to do in us. Friends, there's bad news for religion and rule keepers. That's not the path to take. But there is really, really good news for renovation of the heart. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, how grateful we are that you are in the renovation business, that whether we tend to be the rule breaker or the rule keeper, there is hope for us. You can take the hardest of hearts, God, and if we cooperate with you, you can help us to become loving and kind and joyful and free like Jesus is. And so we ask now in this moment that we would be people who cooperate with you, who are not blind to what is going on on the inside, who give up the path of religion and rule keeping and instead say, God, I want to be the real deal. I want you to shine forth in me all throughout my days. Thank you for this hope that you give to every one of us, for this really good news. We are deeply grateful today, and we want to choose to walk with you and to cooperate with you in this good work. It's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen.